Welcome to Therapy on the Cutting Edge, a podcast for therapists who want to be up to date on the latest advancements in the field of psychotherapy. I'm your host, Dr. Keith Sutton, a psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area and the director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. Today, I'll be interviewing Dr. Munia Khanna, a psychologist, researcher, teacher, and author. Munia is a specialist in childhood anxiety and has been involved in a number of research studies on treatment using cognitive behavioral therapy, also in research on pediatric OCD, and she has worked with Dr. Phil Kendall to create a computerized version of his Coping Cat program that is used with children with anxiety in schools and many other contexts. She's a founder and director of the OCD and Anxiety Institute in Pennsylvania and is a research scientist at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. She's also in the process of publishing her second book, which will be on resiliency. Let's listen to the interview. Welcome, Munya. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So Munya, I've known you for some years now. I actually did uh, training many years ago uh, with Edna Foa and the exposure with response prevention for OCD, and then um, was given your name as a consultant for working with kids with OCD and pediatric anxiety, and you've been my kind of go-to person over the years um, to talk about difficult cases and such. Yes. Um, and also, you are were involved with developing Coping Cat, the um, the program for kids and the computerized uh, CBT program, and lots of other stuff. Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 I can I can kind of walk you through the background. Um, you know, maybe even before uh, we had originally met. Um, uh, so I started out, I was um, so lucky, you know, I think just sometimes, um, you know, the universe sort of uh, leads you in the right direction. And it did for me, I met Marty Seligman as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and actually, that was um, uh, uh, my first research uh, <laughs> internship or externship, what what you'll call that. And uh, it was, um, you know, really just changed everything for me. I was a pre-med, you know, sort of um, heading, heading in that field. I knew I wanted to help people, but this was um, really life-changing for me. Um, we learned that the study I was part of was the study when, uh, where they were testing out CBT, uh, brief CBT in, mm -hmm schools and they were comparing schools with this brief CBT uh, against schools that were not getting this uh, CBT. Uh, these were short groups, you know, 35 minute groups. And, um, uh, and I think over the course of eight to 16 weeks, we were seeing huge changes in how, um, how often the kids would meet criteria for depression uh, yeah. at, at the end of, not just at the end of the groups, but even long-term uh, mm -hmm. compared to the other schools that never received those groups. And it was just, you know, for me, just the amount of impact that words were having, you know, mm -hmm. words that were offered that were, you know, relatively low cost, you know, in a sense mm -hmm. of, of, for public schools certainly, uh, to be able to offer something in, in just eight weeks or 12 weeks or 16 weeks, depending on uh, the program, that they were seeing such change, um, long-term change, changes in the way kids were functioning um, globally, not just with depression ratings. And 
to, that was it for me. I, I said to myself, you know, everybody should know about this. <laughs> and, and, that, and then so uh, after meeting uh, Marty Seligman and his great team, Karen Rivich and Andrew Chate at Penn, I was again lucky to be able to work with Phil Kendall. Mm-hmm. Phil was the uh, author of The Coping Cat Treatment and The Coping mm-hmm. Cat was the what is now the standard of you know best practice for psychotherapy in children with anxiety mm-hmm. it's a 16 session cbt program phil was my graduate mentor mm-hmm. i learned my work uh in anxiety and kids i learned everything from phil and his team at temple um and then you know phil and i became you know, collaborators and friends, you know, in that graduate school process. And, you know, I said to him, I think, you know, this is, this was now 2001, you know, 2000. And I said, Phil, um, technology is going to be big in Mm -hmm. mental health. And, and it's such a great way to reach kids. And it's such a great way to reach families and uh, maybe even help standardize some of the quality of care being offered yeah. and maybe a way to reduce um, the friction between, you know, we, we talk so much about how to bridge the gap between research world data mm-hmm. and community world data, right? We know, we know that kids are getting treatment, even the ones who are getting treatment in the community are not getting evidence-based treatments. Mm-hmm. And so we're not seeing the same outcomes. So even, so first the problem is that there's not enough people getting treatment. The next problem is that those of those who are, are not getting the kind of care that is leading to any real, you know, measurable change mm-hmm. and how to bridge that gap. And I, I you know, it, for me, technology was a, a clear um, direction to go for, for psychotherapy. And at that time, uh, there wasn't, there, you know, iPhones were not really uh, iPhones. There were no smartphones. Um, there were uh, flip phones. Um, and, and of course, the internet was still, you know, was there, but it was not what it is today, you know. Um, so I was, uh, my background, my, my father's a, a technologist, actually, um, in his way, uh, had sort of started that path early. And so mm-hmm. I learned from him, uh, young and became very sort of computer comfortable, I'll say. I'm not an expert, you know, I'm a coder or anything like that, but I'll, I'll say that I became very comfortable with technology early on. And so it was a really easy uh, fit for me and mm-hmm. Phil uh, being really progressive and supportive and uh, excited by the prospect. We wrote our first program together, Camp Copalot. Uh Camp Copalot is a 12 session online now it was on a DVD at the time but now fully (laughs) really that's wonderful um it it doesn't work anymore but um because the flash doesn't work anymore but everything is now online uh cloud-based and uh, and still very much alive. And, uh, you know, just it, it's a quick fast forward, but schools are um, calling me daily uh, to, to implement Camp Copalot for their remote um, support Especially, system. Yeah, with everything yeah. with COVID right with now. With everything with COVID. 
Yes. And so okay. I, you know, I'm online. That's good to know. Yeah, it's online. You know, copingcatparents.com is still the hub of where we're um, keeping all of our programs. And, you know, again, very grateful that it was there um, that we had this program ready to go when COVID hit, we had data to support it. And so very excited that we're sharing this with school districts and with mm -hmm. families. Families are able to buy it too, so parents can buy them, buy the programs too. Anyway, so that was 2002 is when we, when we wrote uh, Camp Copalot and we launched it. It became a research study uh, that we did. I finished in 2008. After that, again, very lucky to start working with um, Marty Franklin and John Passantini uh, in the OCD world. So Marty Franklin was, uh, gave me my first job after my, uh, my, my internship, or uh, actually it was my postdoc um, at Columbia where Marty came to visit me and offered me uh, my first uh, role as a faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and very uh, so so exciting it was a dream job I, I had gone to Penn as an undergrad and sort mm -hmm. of came full circle back and Edna Foa was there mm -hmm. and uh, so I was really uh, lucky again to be able to learn PE from Edna mm -hmm. learn about exposure and response prevention from Edna yeah. and from Marty. And Marty is such a brilliant clinician. Um, I just uh, fell in love with the work, the EXRP work, um, yeah. seeing how the effective- being the prolonged exposure then- Thank the you, yes. Exposure with response prevention. Yeah. Correct. So EXRP exposure with response prevention, that's the treatment that we've found to be most effective for OCD. Um, and that, that Marty is just so brilliant in really using that approach with kids. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, where we did our work. Um, he had already started this work um, called the POTS trials. It was the pediatric uh -huh. OCD treatment study. Mm. And so they had done the first randomized trial evaluating CBT with exposure and response prevention compared mm -hmm. to medication, mm -hmm. uh, which was a, an SSRI, compared to the combination of both mm -hmm. uh, versus placebo. It was a multi-site trial, the first to be done uh, in kids. And he had published that in JAMA and I came, uh, I came on board uh, when the second trial was being started uh, and and then I stayed on uh, to evaluate and develop the work on junior uh, OCD treatment, which mm. was uh, then then we started calling that POTS Junior. And sure. really what that was, was uh, working with kids between the ages of five and eight uh -huh. um, and and translating the same approach, but for a younger population. And that involved mm -hmm. parents a lot more. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I stayed, uh, and, and we published the results of those trials while, while I was there. And it was so, such exciting and fulfilling work, um, to be able to see these treatments that I could see for years working yeah. in session. 
that we could show now that, you know, that we had the data to say, yes, actually it's working and it's working as good as medications in many yeah. cases. And it's, you know, and maybe even longer term better to do treatment with CBT than without CBT yeah. for a longer term impact. Mm. Uh, so that was so rewarding. And Doing the exposure with response prevention with CBT? Correct. Or Okay, combining those two as well as how did it oh. do with and without the medication? Yeah, so the, the, the results were that medication alone mm. was as effective as CBT with exposure alone. Uh-huh. Okay. So either one alone was effective. Yeah. Uh, but when you combined them, it was mm-hmm. more effective. Mm. And when you looked longer term, out to a year that it seemed that CBT was having longer term impact. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, I'll say this not through data, but through what we've, what we've come to understand is that after about a year, some changes may need to happen on the medication side. Uh uh, And so we don't have the post one year data on that. Um, I think that that will be coming too, but, um, but basically it was, you know, the punchline was that if you haven't already started medication, that perhaps mm-hmm. CBT with exposure and response prevention would be the one to try yeah. first if mm-hmm. you had if a child with OCD, because that is a low side effect, mm-hmm. um, you know, long-term impact potential to be uh, all they need to benefit and to come to um you know, a level of, of symptom severity that was uh, not significantly interfering in their lives. Um, So that, you know, again, so, so fulfilling for us to say, yep, we, you know, this is working. This, these are words, these are things we can, we can share uh, Mm -hmm. with low, you know, negative um, side effects. And Mm -hmm. uh, the difficult part, of course, about therapy is that you have to find someone who knows how to provide it and you have to have the time to be able to participate in it and you have to have the resources to be able to pay for it or Mm -hmm. insurance that will be able to cover it and all of those things are tremendous barriers Mm -hmm. to mass scale and and we've seen you know that 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 bridge that I talked about earlier is still Mm -hmm. very much uh, a, a wide gap Um, so, but, you know, and that sort of takes me to where I am now. I think that's what brought me to where the work is today, which is really just to disseminate this in more, more ways and more delivery methods Mm -hmm. and simplify as much as possible so that maybe paraprofessionals can also be as effective as highly trained professionals mm. to support kids on the front lines a bit yeah. more. Um, what, what, what kind of things are you doing to get it out there? Yeah, so, so I'll say first, um, I'll, I'll sort of categorize it. So if I say as a, as a whole, my, my job, you know, my focus, career focus has shifted really from where I was trying to be part of the team that was evaluating and making sure these treatments were working, making sure we had the data to support it, making sure, you know, this is what we wanted to recommend. And, and now that we've sort of 
gotten to that point where, yes, if, you know, we, we know a few things, we know there are things that can help. Now the job has kind of shifted to how do we get this, these tools into the hands of families who need it? Mm-hmm. And so now if I say that that is sort of my umbrella focus, I've, I've kind of taken it in, in a few different directions. One is in writing much more. I'm trying to do a lot more direct to consumer writing mm-hmm. as opposed to research writing, you know, which is where things were in, in the previous, you know, 20 mm-hmm. years of my life. Yeah. Uh, and then moving that to, you know, what I've been um, writing, of course, the first book was called The Worry Workbook, which is a workbook designed for kids mm-hmm. um, to learn and use some of these strategies to help them manage stress and, and worry. And it's designed really for, for parents to work with their children, mm-hmm. and that the workbook is sort of something that walks them through the steps. And mm-hmm. So I, that was a, a first pass uh, of writing to consumers directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that book now is being used in some school districts as well, um, which it, you know is, is wonderful. So again, more tools out to the public. Yeah. The other book that you mentioned is um, I've, we're writing the resilience recipe. Mm-hmm. And Phil Kendall and I are, are authors on The Resilience Recipe. It'll be coming out in November. Mm. And what we really wanted to do is, again, speak directly to the parents. Yeah. You know, that, that um, you know, I'll, again, I'll back up a little bit. In the time that we were doing that research and the time, you know, that we are in today, mm-hmm. the sense of urgency has multiplied so greatly you know I don't even know how to wrap my head around it really Um, the numbers of kids who are struggling obviously you know we we've seen the news uh, of the doubling rates of suicide in kids under 24 we've seen the the trajectory of anxiety and depression um, and the the COVID pandemic has now taking those numbers and sort of blown them out of the water. I don't think so. I don't have the numbers exactly to give you right now. No. They're being collected. But, um, you know, I, I think what what can we say, except I'm sure that they're extraordinary. And yeah. that mm-hmm. I think um, I think that the need for for action and the need for people, you know, to to become empowered themselves is so important. And I got very frustrated, Phil and I both uh, got fr- frustrated because what was happening was we were speaking to other researchers. We were, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was great. We were talking with schools and hospitals and clinics. And so places that had staffed, uh, you know, experts and, and clinicians, they were, they were using coping CAD and they were using the, the exposure and response prevention. Um, so that was wonderful. That was a great big step for the first, you know, round of things. But, mm-hmm. you know, this round has to be um, so much more active and so much more in the hands of everyone. And, and the frustration was that partially it was our fault. We're, we're here not mm-hmm. really talking to the public. We're not really on TV. You don't see that many, yeah. you know, expert clinical psychologists on 
on social media or on television or um, radio, I think you are then getting people who are interpret maybe interpreting the work or mm -hmm. maybe talking about their own life experience or maybe that they've heard, you know, they've become sort of students of this enough that they're now communicating and being mm -hmm. effective communicators have reached audiences. And when we can hear that, yes, they're saying some things that are definitely good, they're definitely leaving out a lot of things that need to be included. And, mm -hmm. and so I felt sort of personally responsible uh, and and so Phil and I said, you know, Coping Cat has been given to the people, you know, it's in the hands of the people who who we wanted it to get to in the in the hospitals and the clinics. But now we really need to get this um, to the hands of parents. Yeah. And so the resilience recipe is really using the the components of cognitive behavioral therapy for kids with anxiety and depression and combining it really to be, um, you know, David Barlow would use the term transdiagnostic, you know, uh -huh. not really just for kids with anxiety, not really just for kids with de depression, but using the principles that have worked for those populations to, to, to make those principles available to parents mm -hmm. and make the strategies practical and something that you can do at home and something that I'm hoping that parents can feel um, empowered by because then they can handle a lot of these conversations. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the, the, the end of every chapter has a, a, a you know, key takeaways, but throughout there is conversation starters because it's, it's designed to help that conversation. You know, oh. what do I say to, you know, so a top 10 list on a blog is only so effective if I know how to present it or, or how to even make sense of it. You know, how do I know when to use it? How do I know if that even applies to my child? Mm -hmm. So what we tried to do is make it clear where those top 10 tips came from in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, here's the principles behind them. Yeah. And then here's how you would talk about it. And here's just even an example of a conversation starter. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like the, the principle-driven kind of transdiagnostic approach that's being exactly. able to cover numerous issues. And when the parents have the principles, then they can kind of maybe have a little more confidence or a little more ease in discussing that and having conversations with kids rather than just kind of going off the, the information itself and not really understanding kind of the, the principle it comes from. That's exactly right. Because I, you know, so, so again, I, I really tried to avoid a list of top 10 tips yeah. when we wrote this um, because I really wanted to make it that, um, that it could be um, really understood and then, you know, be able to create a lifestyle around it, not just, you know, sort of a short-term fix of a problem, you know, yeah. and that's, Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny too about the idea of resilience. So that's always been a, yeah. a great interest of mine because, you know, I, one of my specialties is, is children, teenagers, and, yeah. you know, there's all these different things that we can do to help them through their childhood, through their life. And, you know, but I always wonder, you know, in my own experience and others that I've known that have gone through, you know, difficult things and come through and been able to go on to be successful and other people that struggle and don't and, and really kind of have a hard time in life. Yeah, I mean, how is it, you know, it's really kind of hard to figure out kind of what leads that person to overcome those obstacles 
and go on to thrive while others get really kind of stuck. And particularly too, even now that I have my own children and kind of really looking at how do I, you know, help influence their values and give them tools and so on. Um, but also kind of having that kind of resiliency and um, overcoming obstacles that might come in their lifetime or so on. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on just kind of resiliency. And I know, right, Mari um, Seligman and kind of where some of your work was starting was a lot of positive psychology, resiliency yeah. and, and so yeah. on. Right. So yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on those. Yeah, and you know, and so uh, definitely influenced by Marty Seligman, Karen Rivich, and uh, Andrew Chate's work on resiliency. Um, and uh, but I'll say that what we might do a little bit differently, or maybe not differently, but maybe in addition to uh, some of the principles that they speak to, we we really incorporate a lot of the principles about anxiety that we understand. You know, we we understand the stress, you know, that fight or flight cycle very well, and and it's very core to uh, a lot of our coping strategies. You know, meaning that when somebody is is anxious, um, that your response is not just because of the situation you're in, you know, okay, I have a challenge, I have a test, or I have, you know, let's say, um, I'm worried about uh, getting COVID. Yeah. Um, the circumstance is there. And a lot of times we really, we, we, we just assume that that circumstance is creating that stress. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, but what we understand of, of anxiety and the source of all of our anxieties is that our body is so pre-programmed to scan for danger mm -hmm. and to over-interpret danger just in protection. You know, we call it the caveman brain for kids, you know, or the bully, uh, as John March would have put it, um, that 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 we use that language, I think, a lot more than maybe we did with the, the resiliency work when we were working with kids that were more prone to uh, the more depressive yeah. response to stress. So, mm -hmm. but um, so what we did was really married the two, being that they are so, so really similar in so many ways, even though they might be manifesting in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, but I, that's sort of a digression. What I'll say is that my take on resilience is that, um, you know, I, this is very much the, the crux of the book that's coming out. So I'll sort of just try to give you the, 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 the bullets and um, yeah. my, our, our theory about uh, what it takes to develop resiliency in kids. Um, is an approach that really combines four key concepts. Mm. And those, so I'll just take one at a time. Sure. Um, the first is the need for a development of awareness and of compassion, right? So awareness and compassion are, is one of our first uh, main blocks, you know, the main foundation of being resilient is to have great amount of awareness of mm -hmm. your own physical real response, your, your self-talk or your inner voice mm -hmm. uh, response, your tendencies in terms of behaviors and yeah. where that comes from. The insight and that understanding mm -hmm. is such a powerful tool in being able to counteract. You know, it gives you the opportunity to observe 
Yeah. Uh, and then that observation gives you the distance between the, the feeling that may have come instinctively and mm -hmm. what you choose to do next. And yeah. so the first key component, I think, is how to help, is, is the need to help them build that awareness. So again, that mindfulness, that kind of, you know, uh, detective to kind of look at what's going on that's kind of leading to those emotions or behaviors or such. Yes, right. And, and we do, we use the same kind of cognitive behavioral, you know, strategies like, you know, the detective or, you know, listening to your inner voice or listening to your self-talk. So we use some of those and it, it all fits um, in that same category of, of mm -hmm. mindfulness of being able to really slow down and become more aware. Yeah. And, and that, like I said, it's such a powerful tool in giving us control over what happens next. Yeah. You know, we want to be in creation of what happens next, as opposed to just being responding to whatever situation we're in. And that's true for when things go badly or mm. when things are challenging, you know, so, so that's, so resilience, again, it's, it's a sort of a universal strategy for both types of challenges, both anxiety provoking and those that are about loss and grief and, you know, loneliness. Yeah. Um, so and I think sometimes about it as kind of like moving from react, being reactive to being responsive rather than just reacting to something, kind of deciding how do I want to respond to this situation? Yes, exactly. And so, and we teach the worry cycle, you know, you've seen me draw that cycle so many uh -huh. times in, in workshops and, and with kids, um, you know, that drawing is just, it's just a map. It helps you sort of start mapping. And that map gives you then now a visual and now something actionable, you know, something that you can get a distance from enough to do something about. Mm -hmm. So, so that's sort of the first key component we'll talk mm -hmm. about in the book. And the, and the compassion part, can you speak to that? Yeah. Is that like the coping thoughts? The compassion part, no, not yet. Actually, I think the uh -huh. compassion part is about observing them without judgment as, mm. as we sometimes feel, you know, because I'm anxious, I'm weak, you know, because mm. I reacted badly, it was an error. It was a, it was me being just vul too vulnerable. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. I need to be non-judgmental, you know, noticing rather than judging. Yes. Noticing rather than judging. And, and I spend a lot of time talking about perfectionism actually, mm. and um, I'll say that I think that's one of the biggest challenges, even though, uh, of course, COVID and sort of the uncertainty of our future is going to trump all of this uh, for a little while. But I think a lot of what our kids were struggling with was just this perfectionism culture, you know, this culture mm -hmm. of you will have a good life only if you and then all of these conditions, if you are hardworking enough, smart enough, thin enough, um, funny enough, you know, have enough friends, you know, so then our kids are getting into this checklist of how am I doing on all of these things? And as you know, our brain will never help us out in that area. Yeah. And, and also just life is usually, you know, of course, I'm mediocre compared to a million other people. So if yeah. I really start measuring this out, uh, it's always going to turn out not great and easy for the mind to start heading in that direction of I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I think um, the, the idea of giving parents the language to, to really, we have to be a filter almost to that message. The, the, the fact that you are seeing messages and hearing messages in school and online and on, on uh, shows uh, about what it takes to be happy. Mm -hmm. um, I think those conversations have to be had early and often um, it's not that we are going to change society, you know, by saying, ignore all those things, put away your phone. That's not mm -hmm. how it's going to work. Yeah. Um, it has to be through conversations, you know, conversations about what makes you worthy has nothing to do with any of those things, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and sort of the meaninglessness of the things that we say we've kind of started to say are meaningful. Um, and, so we want them to have that space to be compassionate about failure because mm -hmm. you can't really approach and be resilient and bounce back from failure when everybody around you is saying failure is not okay. Yeah. Um, and so we're sort of expecting kids to just, you know, hey, you've got these SATs that I have told you since the fifth grade that are the benchmark or the the gateway to the rest of your life but don't worry about it you shouldn't stress mm -hmm. about that you should be resilient yeah <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, how can we get more grit you know can we yeah. get you more gritty now and and I think it's really unfair if we're not having the conversations to take apart you know your intelligence is not measured by this test I yeah. know how, you know your worth your value in society is not measured by this test. Where you go to, what, what, what sweatshirt you put on is mm -hmm. not the sign of what I think of you. Yeah. Uh, and if anybody does that, it's their loss or their shortcoming of, of thinking through this more, you know? Um, and so, um, you know, not to oversimplify, but, but again, the conversation about this, um, so communicating our values as opposed to our fears is something I, I think we reiterate a few times in the book um, when it comes to helping build compassion. Yeah. Um, okay, so then the second part. So the, the second part, and this is where those coping thoughts come in. This is about cultivating a mindset of growth and flexibility. Mm -hmm. that, that's where we spend a lot of time uh, as a major next component required to build resilience. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we want to help them see how their thoughts and their behaviors are influencing how they feel. Um, mm -hmm. And that it's not just, again, what they're experiencing in the world. And, you know, having a mindset that there is no such thing as failure because I'm never going to stop trying one opportunity ends or closes. I, another will come. I will pursue yeah. another. And that um, a rejection is a, is a learning opportunity. It's a temporary um, delay of, of what comes next, or it's just, you know, a, a, a part of the path to what comes next um, opportunities to learn and grow. And the fact that, you know, I, I talk about it as having a superpower, you know, the fact that we have the ability to reflect is kind of our biggest, it's our, it's our kryptonite, you know, we, yeah. we, we reflect and we, we think of all the things we did wrong. We think of all the things we could have avoided and then start planning how to avoid them in the future. So in a lot of ways, we think our mind is just always doing the wrong thing and just sort of a pain. 
but but actually it's our superpower it's actually the thing that helps us the most you know that that we are surviving because we get to innovate and problem solve and learn and grow and change and love and give and share and so we talk about how to really build up that focus the focus Mm -hmm. on the creating and the doing and the learning as opposed to the reflection of what didn't go well and Mm-hmm. And, and that's where we talk about coping thoughts and, and thinking, you know, deciding which thought is the one that is actually the most useful um, as you move forward. Okay. So, so that's part of awareness, compassion, and, and what did, how did you phrase the second one again? Cultivating a mindset of growth and flexibility. Mm-hmm. Okay. A growth mindset. A growth mindset, of course. Um, mm-hmm. Carol Dweck absolutely has influenced this and um, the work in flexibility, you know, influenced by many as well, Edna Foa, Marty Franklin, mm-hmm. uh, and many others that about, you know, that when we become too rigid about exactly what we expect, exactly what we should do, yeah. it, it puts us at risk of, again, being too focused on what didn't happen. Yeah. Um, as, a, as opposed to growth. Um, and then I, this one is the big one, I'll say uh-huh. for, for us in the anxiety world is the third one, which is adopting a lifestyle of approach. Mm. So in our research, and as you know, we call this exposure, yeah. you know, exposure is such a terrible word. It sounds like something you wouldn't want. Um, but what I, I, I like to call it approach <laughs> more yeah. than exposure. I think it's, I, I actually think approach might be more accurate than exposing. Uh, you know, we're trying to do the opposite of avoidance, which means approaching yeah. or moving forward or coming in. Yes, and an openness to that approach. Um, so this is where I, you know, I think a lot of clinicians, even though they are well, you know, studied in a lot of this, I think a lot of times, even even good clinicians mm-hmm. really ha- uh, hold back from doing this, you know, real push towards approach in the context of therapy. And I think we do this at home too, you know, um, mm-hmm. meaning as parents, I think, um, you know, Eli Leibowitz, who's done some incredible work at the Yale Child Study Center um, has just recently done a study on uh, um his his work is seeing that it has shown that parents in therapy learning um, how to not accommodate or learning mm, how to yeah. encourage approach is as effective as having a child in therapy. So wow. so that's how powerful first how powerful a parent's role is. Second, how powerful the shift from avoidance to approach is when it comes mm. to building resilience and building um, that, that sort of, you know, we always say, I just wish they were more confident. I wish they could handle stress more. And, and this, this lifestyle of approach is something that we spend a lot of time talking about. So it's not just, you know, making sure they pet the dog if they're afraid of the dog. It's also just sort of saying, I don't know who's going to be there, but let's go anyway. Or I know. I don't know who's going to be at camp. Maybe you're going to be horrible at baseball. I don't know, but let's just sign up anyway. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I love to hear that research too, because I don't know if you know, but I, I do a lot of family work. One of my main focuses yes. is working with family systems yes. and particularly that piece. I'm also I think really you'll like, really um, enjoy it. Yeah, yeah his and, work uh, is fantastic. And he has some great books that I wish I had, you know, uh, the, the references to give you right away. But what I'll say is if you Google Eli Leibowitz uh, mm-hmm. or look him up on Amazon, his books are terrific and uh, really spend a lot of time talking about how families can you know, encourage approach and he'll, he might say, you know, reduce accommodation. Um, and well, about it too, is that as families are trying to help out, sometimes yeah. they're reinforcing avoidance. So it's not out of malice or doing anything. They're just not trying at to help. all. And, and, and a lot of times them. we're just trying to keep them functional. I, I, I tell my parents, you know, all the time that I get it. You're just, you know, he didn't want to go out of the car to get to the, you know, baseball. Let's use that as the mm-hmm. example. And, and you need to get to your daughter's, you know, doctor's appointment and you can't sit there. So, okay, let's just skip baseball tonight. We got to go to no. the doctor's appointment or um, you got to sort of push things along or, you know, oh, your stomach is feeling sick, but I have to go to work. Okay. Why don't you just stay home today? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it gets, it goes from zero to 90 very quickly in terms of becoming interfering. And that's usually when we'll hear that things are a problem, but um, I, it's, it's not just that parents are sort of, you know, I think it's uh, unfair to label all of it as helicopter parenting or Mm -hmm. overprotection. I don't think it's all that. I think sometimes we respond to our kids, some kids who are already sort of an approach mindset uh, already. Mm -hmm. If you let them skip a day of school because their stomach hurts because they're nervous for a test, that's not necessarily going to translate into a lifetime of stress and test anxiety. And so a lot of times we're just sort of, we're playing it by ear. We're reading the, their response and we're kind of trying to figure out, you know, where do I draw the line? And sometimes it's just harder to know. And sometimes our kids are asking for things in a way that sounds very reasonable, but is actually, you know, not the right way to go. And again, that's why I think understanding the principles really helps because it helps you kind of navigate. How do I know? Is this the time I have to hold the line or can I let this one go? You know, oh, she doesn't want to go on that sleepover. Is she anxious about sleeping away from me uh, or at home or is it that she's not particularly fond of this group of friends that is going to be there and is that kind of okay or or is it social anxiety you know and and so you want to now understand a little bit about you know what the decision making can look like and I think that's again understanding the principles of avoidance and the function of avoidance it can help you kind of map out is this just a one-time thing, certain mm. group of kids, maybe this is fine, you don't have to go. Or yeah. do I see, oh, this is a pattern of every time there's a group of kids that they're not, you know, they're, they're not as comfortable with that they choose to not go. Maybe I should encourage more of this. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we should try more of this. Maybe I should push a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so really building that lifestyle of approach is such an important thing. And, and certainly if you know that they're avoiding something specific, we also talk through how to really push on those more specific things. So if there is something like, you know, test anxiety, or if there is something like social uh, anxiety or, or, or a lot of anxiety around new social experiences, we do also, you know, 
discuss how to support kids and in practicing that um, in step by step, you know, as we would in a, in, in an exposure uh, world, we would say do it slowly in small steps so it's it's manageable to move to the next step. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we do talk about that, but I think we also talk about it more generally too, um, in terms of this approach lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah so, and, and then the last one is kind of an easy kind of quick one, which is not easy to, to implement, mm-hmm. but easy to, to uh, summarize, is that uh, our job is really, as parents, is, is really just, we, we aren't teaching something. We aren't we are, we are teaching, but we are not, um, let's say, we, we, by doing and saying any of these things, we are not the change agents. You know, mm-hmm. we, are, we are just guides. We are supports. And that's really the thing we can do most. That's where mm-hmm. our power is, I think, most valuable, is how to give compassion, how to give support, how to appreciate. You know, our kids don't hear enough, I think, about what we appreciate about them. And again, to no fault of anyone, it's not that we're a particularly harsh society that way. It's just, you know, other than saying, I love you, have a great day, things get busy and we keep moving. And it's hard to say, oh my God, you, that was really a funny, you just, you know, you cracked me up. That was really funny. Yeah. More often than, oh, good job that you did so well, you're a really good math student, you know, and, and so, of course, both should be appreciated, but, but just generally, you know, coming at, I I like to have a five to one ratio, I'll say, of, of saying things that are positive, uh, noticing things that are positive, and then that makes your one thing that you would say, hey, you know, why don't you try this? Or, Hey, you know, it seems like you're having a hard time with this. Maybe we could do something to help that one correction or that one teaching moment can become more powerful because you're not, you know, sort of on uh, there, you haven't become part of the anxiety cycle then, you know, you're part of the security piece, Mm -hmm. right? You're where things go to feel good. And, and that, is I think so powerful. So, uh, you know, we've labeled that section, the ultimate gift of security. Mm. And it's not really security in that, oh, you can make sure that I'm never in a car accident. I wish we could do that, but security and knowing that you're always there and that there's nothing they can say or do that would change how, how much you believe in them, how much you value them, how mm. much you uh, of course love them. Um, and then again, over and over in as many ways as you can to a five to one ratio. And I would say in the COVID time, you know, when we're seeing maybe more irritability, maybe mm-hmm. more withdrawal, maybe a little bit, a little bit of regression, even not a little bit. I mean, in some cases, a lot of regression uh, of, you know, having been isolated for so long and having routines be off for so long, it's making everyone, including adults, um, really lose center and and feel a lot of angst and feel a lot of agitation and making all of us a little bit too irritable um in this world i would say double that you know make it a 10 to 1 ratio because you you know rather than saying i need to discipline more Mm -hmm. because they're just acting out and this is not okay in my house you know i would say support guide encourage 
you know, tell them their impact, tell them they're, you know, they're valued and, you know, and meet them where they are, play Mm -hmm. a video game, even though you're worried about uh, too much screen time with them, Um, invite their kids, their their friends on a Zoom call um, so that they can have that friend contact. But, but even if it's, you know, more than usual or seems yeah. like too much, uh, right now, I don't think there can be too much love <laughs> that, yeah. that we cannot. Well, I think, too, that that's the proactive part of parenting, that sometimes, you know, is it's sometimes more effortful to kind of shift our attention in that direction. Sometimes we get more into the reactive parenting and just yeah. kind of taking stuff away or stop doing that or don't doing that rather yeah. than, you know, having to reinforce like, oh, you're doing that really well. That's good. We're trying to get that to happen more. Exactly. Um, I think about it too, that kind of uh, makes me think when you're talking about this as parents as guide and support that, you know, I always kind of think about one of the greatest gifts that parents can give to their yeah. kids is their faith in them. Yes. That, like, even though maybe they did, you know, had a tough time at school, like they know they're going to kind of make it through this, they're going to do all right. Or even though maybe, you know, this happened or that happened, they can see that in them that they're going to make it through all these things. Yes. I think that kind of really can instill that, that kind of resiliency to not kind of feel like every, every kind of bump in the road or kind of wave is going to, you know, be the end of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I do a lot of work with kids and families with ADHD and adults with ADHD and shifting kind of to that, you know, oftentimes kids with ADHD that you mentioned that five to one, they get in so much more trouble and they end up, you know, we really have to increase that by a lot more. And really the goal oftentimes with kids with ADHD is just to get them through their childhood without a great deal of shame. Yes. Building that resiliency because that's one of the things parents and adults with ADHD struggle with. Is that 100% agree. I could not, I would underline that a million times. Absolutely. Um, and I think you put it so well, you know, making it through childhood, that their childhood should be an experience of unconditional love. Mm-hmm. And that that, you know, feeling of, of course, again, we're approaching challenges, we're, we're encouraging approach. So it's not that we're saying, you know, we're not demanding anything, we're not challenging, we're not growing, we pursue all of those things. But with the understanding that we believe in you, uh, you don't have to fit the mold of everything else, everybody else, um, that you are, you are enough exactly as you are, and anything you want to pursue, I support, you know, those kinds of conversations, you know, resiliency is, is the confidence in your own ability to recover from adversity. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard to develop if you're afraid of failure. Yeah, definitely. You know, so... It's all really great. And I'm really looking forward to the book. Um, I think this is such an important subject. And, you know, it's definitely sounds like it'll be really helpful to parents. And it's a great addition. I mean, you're having this impact with the schools with coping pad, and, you know, now making that available to parents. And now some of these books sound like really great resources to really kind of help families get those tools. To help I hope so. I really hope so only having to you know wait to get the professional help and sometimes when they can't get the professional help right right and you know our website actually does have some links to how to find help um in their communities and um you know through through different organizations so i'm you know we definitely know that there is a time 
when it is important to get help, um, when, when kids are struggling, you need support um, beyond what you can offer at home. And so we do have resources for that as well um, that we're linking to and uh, on, uh, you know, to other organizations. So I, I really do hope we're reaching people and, um, you know, and, and it's so exciting that there are these now technologies that allow us to do that through, um, you know, through websites, through blogs, through, you know, social media and through podcasts like mm-hmm. you're doing. I think it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been fun and an honor. And um, I look forward to hearing some of your other podcasts. Yeah, great. Well, thank you. <laughs> Take care. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining us. If you're wanting to use this podcast to earn continuing education credits, please go to our website at therapyonthecuttingedge.com. Our podcast is brought to you by the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, providing in-person and remote therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area. IAP provides training for licensed clinicians through our in-person and online programs, as well as our treatment for children, adolescents, families, couples, and individual adults. For more information, go to sfiap.com or call 415-617-5932. Also, we really appreciate feedback. And if you have something you're interested in, something that's on the cutting edge of the field of therapy and think clinicians should know about it, send us an email or call us. We're always looking for the advancements in the field of psychotherapy to help in creating lasting changes for our clients.